Well, good evening, everybody. I hope you can hear me. Michael, does it sound good? It sounds okay. So um, it's very lovely to be with you. We have a lovely group here in UN Plaza overlooking the UN um, to do this work in Gemini. And it's a delight to imagine all those of you who are gathered listening into the Zoom call. It's a really important time to be gathered. Um, the full moon is going to be around about 7.52, just before 8 tomorrow morning here in New York. And the beauty of when we think of this gathering that we have on Zoom is that for each one of us, this will be a different time. We're, we're in so many different time zones. But for us, it's a nice, beautiful time, 7.52, um, and a peak moment in this annual rhythm when the human worlds and the spiritual worlds come together in a moment of sort of magnetic alignment. As light bears down into the human, and as the Christ watches over the ever-increasing intensity of the downward-flowing light, it can appear at first glance as if the predominant response of the world of the human is one of total confusion, chaos, disturbance, polarization, and instability. It's such a difficult time for so many, a world of conflicting ideologies. And of course, there is a truth to this way in which we see the human world of our time. And yet, as we identify with the group of servers within the human, and with all who at this time have been touched by a vision of the wholeness and beauty of life, and who at the same time are inspired by a sense of future possibilities. The more we focus on this vision, the more we begin to see a very different picture. Then we see the real significance of what is happening to the human. Orientation is changing, and this is reflected in the large numbers of people developing a sense of personal responsibility to actively become creators of goodwill and generators of lives of meaning and ethical purpose. It's as if the incredibly rich diversity of colors and sounds and shapes pouring through all of the higher lights of the seven rays are finding myriad points of location and focus and rooted strength in the waves of relationship giving form and life to the time and space and ordered patterns of the human species. Looking out from the perspective of hierarchy, we might surely see that well-nurtured seeds of the new are now strongly rooted, sprouting fresh shoots in every area of life and in huge numbers of individual lives. In every profession, every academic discipline, and in every single community on the planet, the human response to the dawning sense of wholeness is taking shape in so many ways that we do not generally notice because they are in the main not yet and appropriately not yet newsworthy. They are still working their way into the substance of lifestyles, economies, political cultures, and artistic movements. The full moons represent, in time, rhythmic points of intersection between the evolving human consciousness 
and those spiritual impulses that are in reality driving that evolution. If we're looking at the model of the individual, we might say that the rhythm of the full moon represents the pulse of the soul, reaching out to its personality shadow, once duality has begun to do its work, and once that shadow has begun to recognize that in fact it has a higher and more universal identity. We can think of this pulse or breath as the triple light of the soul flows into and through the triple being of the personality. And we can see that at times this pulse is experienced by the personality as a disturbance and a provoker of crisis, while at other times it can be seen as a source of illumination and fresh insight, but all eventually leading to a reorientation of the life. Right now we're in the period of the immediate build-up to the Gemini full moon, the second day of preparation. Duality and change is very much in the air, and the Gemini full moon is observed as World Invocation Day, a day when those who love the Tibetan's teachings are called upon to do what they can to encourage large numbers of spiritually minded people of all traditions to use the wording and the format of the Great Invocation and to think about the vital role that invocation and positive conscious expectation the vital role that these have to play in the development of right human relations. It's such an under, underestimated, misunderstood potency that we have as human beings, the power to imagine and invoke and call forth. Centuries of an all-embracing consciousness of dualism with its strong sense of separation is finally now bearing strong fruit. For this consciousness of separation and dualism is leading to an ever-increasing awareness of the existence of a higher, more inclusive and universal identity, for ideas of wholeness are encountered as living entities, radiating beauty, livingness, and of immediate personal relevance. And as this dawning sense of synthesis spreads through all the regions of human thought, we can see the wisdom of encouraging servers to engage with purpose and planning in the practice and the act of invocation and in the practice of calling forth these higher potencies of love and light, calling them to reach into the intimacy of our human lives, relationships, and professions to bring revelation and to set off processes of transformation. The Great Invocation in its final form was given to humanity by the Tibetan on behalf of the entire hierarchy. And what made it especially significant was that it was given as a universal prayer for the human. Much of its significance lies in its universality and its potential to appeal to a wide diversity of faith traditions. Inherent in its design and in its power is its potential to be used by millions of people across the globe, 
so that it can really bring to a point of focus a universal cry from the human to the divine for light on the way, for love to transform the heart, and for a higher will to guide ambition and perseverance and courage. Yet after it was originally put into the English language in 1945, through that most intense cooperation between the Tibetan and Alice Bailey, the commonly accepted meaning of some of the original words has changed, and this has affected the universal appeal of the invocation. In 1945, the word men was commonly accepted to refer to all human beings and to the entire human species. It really, apart from a very few pioneering thinkers, had no other meaning. Today, for many esotericists, perhaps most, who have been brought up on the original wording of the invitation, continue to understand this word men, derived from manas, to refer to the human species in its entirety, men and women, young and old, and to the archetypal human, acknowledging the wisdom view that the human kingdom is masculine and the deva kingdom feminine. And so for this reason, the fact that for most esotericists with a long years of work with the invocation, um, we'll be using the original wording of the great invocation in the meditation tonight. But the word men has been changed to human in the adapted invocation. And this has been done really in recognition of and response to the development of human consciousness, the development of the human, recognizing that the new language emerging from people of intelligent goodwill around the world is a result of a new balance emerging between feminine and masculine and a growing concern to honor and respect the rights, freedoms, and responsibilities of every individual human being. This is a wonderful awakening and maturing of the human that is impacting so widely. Changing Christ to coming one in the adapted version of the invocation of firms and more importantly draws attention to the recognition which was always inherent in the great invocation, that the one who is expected, known by many as the Christ, is not the Christ of one particular religion, not the Christ of Christianity, but is rather the Christ universal, often referred to today as the anonymous Christ, expected under different names by different cultures and faiths. As the Franciscan priest and ecumenical teacher Richard Rohr has written, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Long before Jesus' personal incarnation, Christ was deeply embedded in all things. And so let's pause for a moment while we align ourselves individually and as a group with the universal Christ and with the higher immortal self. standing in complete identification with the Christ, with the higher self, can we silently affirm that in the waning of the personality, in the waning of the other self, I, the soul, grow and glow. In the waning of the separated personal self, 
and of the separated group personality. The soul of the individual and the soul of the one group are all who, of all who are united in this meditative work grows and glows. And this glowing radiates through, transforms and brings new life into the self and the myriad selves of time and space. So after a moment of alignment and reflection, we use together the adapted version of the Great Invocation, imagining as we do so the constant sounding of this call to the mind of God, the heart of God, and the will of God by people of goodwill from throughout the world, from now on through, throughout tomorrow, World Invocation Day. From the point of light, within the mind of God. Let light stream forth into human minds. Let light descend on earth. From the point of love within the heart of God, let love stream forth into human hearts. May the coming one return to earth. from the center where the will of God is known. Let purpose guide all little human wills, the purpose which the masters know and serve. From the center which we call the human race, let the plan of love and light work out and may it seal the door where evil dwells. Let light and love and power restore the plan on earth. Esoteric astrology offers so many insights into the way we can understand the important role that the energies of Gemini are playing in humanity's response to this evolutionary incoming pulse of the plan of love and light. And one of these insights that seems especially relevant and significant right now is Gemini as the paramount influence in the four signs of the mutable cross. Gemini, Virgo, Sagittarius, and Pisces. This is a cross of energies that produce, in DK's words, that constant flux and periodic change in time and space 
which will provide a field of adequate experience for the unfoldment of the Christ life and consciousness. We're certainly in a time of constant change and movement, intense mutability with a painfully noticeable absence of stability, order and structure. And for this can be upsetting and apparently chaotic, it's not difficult to see the value in providing the environment of uncertainty and openness to possibilities necessary to allow this new Christ life and consciousness to unfold, not just in the individual, but in systems, organisms, organizations, communities, nations, and people. Mutability is needed for the heart of materialism to be broken. It's needed to allow consciousness to undergo a radical reorientation to the spirit of synthesis and to the sacred. Mutability is really the only way that that can begin to happen. And it's interesting that the mutable signs all mark a time of transition in the seasons. For the northern hemisphere, Gemini, an air sign, marks the transition from spring to summer, which of course meaning autumn to winter for the polar opposite southern hemisphere. Virgo comes at the end of the northern summer, marking the transition into autumn. Sagittarius from autumn to winter, and Pisces from winter to spring. It's often difficult for those of us in incarnation, for esoteric students, to see the transition occurring and the new taking shape when we are ourselves in the midst of such chaotic division and polarization. And in a way, we are players in that world. The idea that flux and change in time and space provides the right environment for the Christ consciousness to unfold seems especially valuable. And considering entire communities, nations, and peoples, it's useful to think that the impact that the mutable cross can have on those for whom the soul is still quiet still quiescent, hidden, as the outer forms of incarnation go through their cycles. In this case, the mutable cross culminates in Gemini when the sense of duality, which remains basic and instinctual, begins to become a source of irritation and leads to a wish for order and stability, leads to a wish for the fixedness of the cross which lies ahead. And it's, this is spoken of as a time when the mystical vision emerges and there is a faint flickering intuitive sense of the higher self. So that is one really important aspect of Gemini and of duality, of Gemini leading duality to this recognition of the other self that we need to be looking for in in our cultures and societies. Signs of the popular cultures of the beginning stages of the awakening to a real living sense of the Christ. The other element that is equally important is in those increasing numbers of people in all cultures and nations in whom the soul is becoming, 
or is already an active presence. In this group, certainly in the new group of world servers, in their tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, mutability produces an ever-increasing awareness of the intuition and of a mind that is in growing relation with both the fourth and fifth kingdoms. And Gemini at this level provides the perfect conditions for the personality's responsiveness to soul impression and consequent stabilizing of the life on the physical plane. It's incredible to think that these two things are happening now at this time. Those who watched the session of the Arcane School Conference on Saturday last weekend from London will have seen the interesting discussion of the media led by the academic, the journalist, and Arcane School student, Alessandro Martinisi. He spoke of the ways in which the addiction to news from all the sources of social media and major news outlets has become such a source of disturbance to the psyche and one could add a reflection of intense mutability. He spoke in terms of traumatic, post-traumatic stress, of the, the way in which this addiction to news, the impact it's having on people, leading to a focus of what it might mean for seventh-ray order and rhythm to begin to radiate through communication systems, driven in major part by responsible actions from journalists, and the major drivers of what's called the news, PR professionals, and media companies. He referred to the glamours of the seventh ray that are stimulated by this focus on the media, this sort of overstimulated media. Things like bigotry, pride, I know, narrowness, superficial judgment and overindulged self-opinion. It's a useful exercise to look out for coverage of the news that fosters the potential for the higher rhythms of the seventh ray to take hold in communities and nations so that what has been curiously called ritualistic decency may begin to be seen to be at work in the world of the human. Speaking last year in November at the Wogabal Seminar, May East, an Ageless Wisdom student who's a prominent, prominent regenerative design worker, closely associated with the Global Eco Village Network, the Finton Community, and the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, May spoke similarly of a new order and structure emerging in the midst of distress as social and environmental problems begin to be looked at through the eyes of the intuition. They spoke about the role of the transition or edge between two distinct biological communities plays in ecological science. These edge environments, as she says, places of high intensity where ecologies are in tension. She often speeks of most, um, many, so many of these regenerative designers use this image, speaking of, say, where, the, where a mountain environment meets, meets a lowland environment. And so in that, in, in, that, in that area of transition between two major ecologies is the area of the most intense creativity. 
these, these tend to be species rich with resources from both environments, providing unique ecological niches, creating conditions for new species to emerge. Regenerative designers concentrate on actions to maximize the diversity, vitality, and product productivity found in these edge environments. And May discussed how she's applied this thinking to the edge effect in communities and urban environments. She's coined the word sociotones. Looking at human environments, particularly cities, where different social groupings, worldviews, power structures, and intentions are in intense relationship, rubbing up against each other. These are environments that are most often regarded as places of intense social problems with a great need to be fixed. And May's work is both academic, she's, um, and she's quite prominent, quite well known as a newspaper columnist and a Scotsman. Um, so her thinking is influential. The edge effect approach changes the way these social environments are viewed transforming thought forms of problems into thought forms of potential. And May's ageless wisdom background is reflected in her comment that these edge effect regions in society can be seen, she says, as pregnant fields, creating conditions for the emergence of unique patterns of meaning and belonging, which are just at the verge of precipitation. And the idea is further developed with the esoteric insight by a focus on developing the regenerative practitioner's skills. In other words, these are activists who are working, as we can say, change agents, um, working for different agencies, nonprofits, sometimes government. Um, and when they're working from this particular focus, part of their training is to develop the skill at imaging, which can be seen in another light as a combination of the practice of invocation and expectation. Referring to a notion among biologists of the law of three, May spoke about three forces at play in communities right now. An activating force initiating action on the streets, uh, protests, agitation, and the like. And we could also see this activating force initiating a lot of aggressive action in social media. That's one force. Then there's a restraining or receptive force which seeks to define, refine, and limit this sort of radical activating force. And an independent reconciling force that struggles to bring the two opposing forces into relatedness and harmony. This idea of the three, um, the law of three comes again from ecology. With these three forces in mind, May hinted that regenerative practitioners use invocation in two ways. First, there is a need to clearly see and value the presence of the two opposing forces, recognizing that this is a, these are energies. So rather than focusing on the issues themselves, seeing these energies flowing through and stirring things up, the activating and the restraining force, and seeing them both in relation to each other, then seeking to make conscious or invoking the appropriate reconciling forces. And here she made a wonderful reference to serendipity. I don't know if any, I'd love this field. 
um, and its relation to the alertness of the regenerative practitioner, what we can think of as the social therapist. They said that the term serendipity describes the incidental discovery of something valuable. It appears as an unexpected brilliant result created through a combination of effort and luck joined by alertness and flexibility. The edges of diverse social intentions coincide in a sociotone, so it's full of surprises and cause something unexpected to happen as a process of enactment rather than luck. So what this means is that while doing edge work within societies, we increase the chances of accidental discovery by being alert and curious. So may we work as esotericists in all of it. This all makes me think of the environment and consciousness where the new group of world servers reaches into hierarchy and hierarchy reaches into the new group of world servers. And this area where all esoteric groups stand if they're living true and real on the edge between hierarchy and humanity. For it is the region of greatest intensity where vitality and creativity are to be found. And what is more, the positive impact of the edge effect in ecology and society seems especially relevant to the idea of the mutable cross and the way in which the energies of mutability provide the right environment, in fact, the perfect environment for the Christ life and the Christ consciousness to take hold. When viewing the world through the lens of Gemini and the mutable cross, we do well to be alert and curious, to be on the lookout for serendipity and for unexpected signs of the Christ life to suddenly emerge. And as we do so, we practice the art of invitation. couple of other just brief comments from DK that seem relevant to all this. Immutable cross is peculiarly a Christian symbol and significantly connected with the Christ life and with the unfoldment of a world savior and is particularly potent during the anti-clockwise turning of the great wheel. And Gemini is sometimes called the constellation of the resolution of duality into a fluid synthesis. Governing as it does all the pairs of opposites in the zodiac, it preserves the magnetic interplay between them, keeping them fluid in their relations in order eventually to facilitate their transmutation into unity for the two must finally become the one. So let us work with letting in the light. 
confusion. We affirm the fact that root fusion and integration in the heart center of the new group of world servants, mediator between the hierarchy and humanity. I am one with my two brothers, and all that I have is theirs. May the love which is in my soul pour forth to them. May the strength which is in me lift and aid them. May the thoughts which my soul creates reach and encourage them. We project a line of lighted energy towards the spiritual hierarchy, the great planetary heart, the great ashram of Sanat Kumara, and we take that light towards the Christ at the heart of Hira. Extend the line of light toward Shambhala, that center where the will of God is known. higher intelligence. Hold the contemplative mind open to the extraplanetary energies streaming into Shambhala, radiated through higher. 
and see the three planetary centers, Shambhala, hierarchy, humanity, coming into alignment and interplay. Meditation, using the seed thought or the Christ-first model, I recognize my other self, and in the waning of that self, I grow and flow.
precipitation. Visualize energies of light, love, and the root to good pouring throughout the planet and becoming anchored on Earth in prepared physical plane centers through which the plan can manifest. You see a six-fold progression of divine love as a sequence of energy precipitation. Shambhala through hierarchy, through the Christ, any group of world servers, men and women of goodwill all over the world, and the myriad physical centers of this peace. interlude, we focus the consciousness as a group within the periphery of the great ashram. In the center of all love, they stand. From that center, I, the soul, will outwardly from that center, I, the one who serves, will work. May the love of the divine self be shed abroad in my heart, my group, and throughout the world. Visualize this downpouring spiritual inflow released from Shambhala through the hierarchy. 
screaming into humanity through their prepared chants. And consider how these incoming energies are establishing the pathway of light for the coming world teacher. Mm-hmm. 